Okay, we are in Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And we were studying verse 10. Yes, Hebrews 1.10. Last, last two weeks ago we were talking about the, the special anointing that Jesus Christ has. He is uniquely the anointed one. That's verse 9. And because he is the Messiah. And I was saying that the only one especially, uh, especially anointed above everyone else in the church is Jesus Christ. All Christians are anointed by the Holy Spirit if they are indeed Christians. And we were mentioning that if you ever have somebody come into town billed as the anointed one with a special anointing, um, what, you, what you have there is a false Christ. So I would, I would suggest not going to the meeting. Because uh, only Jesus is the special anointed one. The Christ means the anointed one. The, the. the anointed one. That's the Christ. Okay, verse 10 now. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. We have a citation here of Psalm 102, 25, through 27 from Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament. We've talked about that uh, quite a bit as we're studying Hebrews because these citations are all from the Septuagint. Now, we're in a section here that's contrasting Jesus Christ, who is the creator, with angels who are created beings. And the author of Hebrews' point is that we need to believe the Son and trust the Son, Jesus Christ, and not depart from Him. And if we are fascinated with angels because they think, because people think maybe angels are going to do something for them that the Son won't, then we're sadly mistaken. And we are in a day where people are fascinated again with angels, are they not? And I was mentioning, mentioning something about that a couple of weeks ago, that most people's understanding of angels has nothing to do with the angels in the Bible. But we'll be talking about that as we go along, because we have uh, the doctrine of angels here in Hebrews chapter 1. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same. Your years will not come to an end. This here, again, is you is talking about Jesus Christ. Right? The Messiah. The Son. Now, what does it mean when it says the Lord laid the foundation of the earth? Yeah, it means creation. It's a Hebrew idiom for God's act of creation. I was reading an older commentary one time, and the person was was arguing this is it was written in the fifties, alright, so it's not that old. But he was arguing for a geocentric universe based on this verse. He says, Well, since God laid the foundation of the earth, so the earth must be just sitting here and uh, it's on its foundation and then everything else has to be spinning around the earth. And that was written in the fifties. I said, well, I thought we settled this one long time ago. <laughs> I was just thinking about Galileo and Copernicus. 
Well, uh, it's not helping people uh, to say that because it's really not the author's intent. If that's what the scriptures were intending to say, well, then we'd have to deal with why did the scriptures say that? I mean, we don't understand things. But that was never the intention. Laying the foundations, the idiom uh, that's taken out of building a building. And it was used in the Old Testament and in the New to mean that God was the creator. Just like a, as a man would create a building, he would lay the foundation first. So God, as the creator, lays the foundation of the earth in his act of creation. And it was never intended to be taken literally that the earth is sitting fixed on a, on a foundation, in which case you'd have to ask, what's the foundation stuck to? You know, it's... <laughs> okay, but not something in the universe, as if it couldn't move. So that that kind of thinking is really not very helpful because it really it wasn't even what the author of the Psalm 102 had in mind when he wrote it. Because it, he, he says that the heavens are the work of your hands. So here here would be an easy way to dispute that kind of a hyper literalism, which really is just as bad as. as uh, allegorical, because in both cases you're not doing justice to the author's intended meaning. In Hebrew poetry, one of the most common, in fact, almost universally used ways of making poetry is using parallelisms. And there are like seven or eight different kinds of parallelisms that you can find in the Old Testament. But the most common one is a synonymous parallelism. All right? And we have one of those in this verse. So when you have a synonymous parallelism, if you understand one part of it, you can understand the other because they're saying the same thing two different ways. It would be like the, the man proposing to his uh, girlfriend saying, I love you very much. I really adore you. And you're assuming one thing means something totally different than the other. That's just a simple synonymous parallelism. Love and adore are synonymous. You're seeing it two ways to be emphatic, right? And so when it says he laid the foundation, and then the heavens are the works of his hands, it's just two different types of idioms for creation. The work of his hands doesn't mean God literally has hands. In his ultimate essence, God is spirit. All right. And so the work of your hands and laying the foundation are just two synonymous ways of talking about the act of creation. As a matter of fact, when you read in Genesis, God spoke the word and it happened. He spoke and let there be light. He didn't have to get out of trowel or implement. Okay. Uh, where should we start with our looking up citations today? Dave, does they have a Bible? Sam, do you want to look up Psalm 8, 3, and 4? Psalm 8, 3, and 4, and then Tim, Zechariah 12, 1. Did anybody read that crazy editorial in Saturday's paper by this guy saying that no reputable scientist believes in creation? I thought I didn't. I don't have time right now. I, I saw that. It turned my crank. I, I, I really should write a letter to you. Yeah, yeah. The, the yeah, that's what I was trying to think of Star It was basically a, a, an editorial saying that creation is, the idea of creation is nothing more than just somebody's religion. And anybody that's a fundamentalist, you know, fundamentalist to them is like is somebody that takes a car bomb and blows up uh, innocent children. Well, 
Christians that believe in creation are fundamentalists, and he, and he linked them to fundamentalist Islamic terrorists. You, you know, and anybody that's fundamentalist is an evil, wicked person, and they, and, they, and they have nothing to do with science, so let's just not call it that. It's just nothing but religion. And so, so I, I thought about writing something to the trip, but I'm really busy. Maybe I just don't do it. I heard that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's plenty of fundamentalists out there that are blowing things up. Anyhow, you think kill. Here, here's what um, here's what this article said. No reputable scientist believes in creation. Now, what's wrong with that statement? It's yeah, it's self. It's 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 self. It's circular reasoning because. The, the guy himself doesn't believe in creation, and he, and he has a prejudice that anybody does that are really a good scientist. And so if you have scientists like this baby, there was just a symposium at the U with brilliant Ph.D. scientists in their field who have written books, and, and uh, one of whom became a creationist based on studying science. What's it, what's it Richard Baby? And, and there's a bunch of these. And, and this guy says, well, they can't be reputable. Why can't they be reputable? Well, your, reputa- your, your reputation, in this guy's thinking, comes from believing in evolution. So as soon as you don't believe in evolution, you just don't have any reputation. That's, that's irrational. Yeah, isn't it a, that's pretty much Paul's line with most liberal things. If you don't agree with what they're saying, then, then you're whacked anyway. Yeah, you're just disreputable. Just <laughs> And so it's a false statement because if your reputation is based on, as a scientist, your learning, your degrees, your publishing cogent material in scientific journals for the review of your peers, and you're giving solid evidence for what you believe and why you believe it. And I read Behe's book, Darwin's Black Box, and, it's, and I studied science for many years before I became a Christian. And this is very compelling science. And it was science that led me to believe in a creator uh, before I became a Christian. So to see, and no, no reputable scientist believes in anything but evolution, it's just, it's ludicrous, yes. But we also have a historical background with many reputable and proven scientists that have made great advancements in science that believe in creation. Well, I, All the way back, I mean, Isaac Newton and, and, and <laughs> Some kind of a God that created. So, the point is that I read that article and I'll, did you saw it too, Dick? Yeah. Turn my crank. I almost went to the typewriter. <laughs> you know, rebuttal. I, I thought about making a funny uh, rebuttal saying, Confessions of a Fundamentalist. You know, the title of that article suggested, or at least made me think, Oh yeah, it was a, it was just a diatribe. But you know, maybe I should take your time. I had a whole article in my mind to send you. I don't know if they published it. Confessions of a fundamentalist. Fundamentalists are causing all the wars and all the trouble. That's what he said. So I said, well, you know, a fundamentalist basically, uh, as far as a Christian, is somebody who believes in the fundamentals, which is the authority of Scripture, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we ought to follow the teachings of Jesus. Now, you suggest that that's going to lead to all of these horrible things. 
Well, let me tell you what Jesus taught. Jesus taught, did not teach us to try to establish a theocracy, which he was talking about in there. He told us to submit to the authorities. He told us to pray for our leaders. He told us to pay our taxes. He told us those that live by the sword die by the sword. He told us to turn the other cheek. He told us to love our neighbor. He told us to forgive those who wrong us. And so what kind of fundamentalism are you scared of anyhow? Should I write that? Yeah. <laughs> the world is full of those kind of fundamentalists. It seems to me like we'd be a lot better off. Now, admittedly, a lot of people that say they believe in Jesus don't listen to what he teaches, but it ain't Jesus' fault. <laughs> okay. Oh, it's a quick comment. Someone running for the Democratic Party is the whole thing. They were speaking and they said, we have to take back the government from the crazy fundamentalists. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that was like, oh my goodness. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to speak up, though, if that's going to... Um, for Bush to say that Saddam Hussein embodying evil, and it's my job before God to wipe him out, is going too far. Show me the mandate in the scriptures that Bush has that mandate to go and say, because I perceive Saddam Hussein as inherently evil, that I have the right to wipe him out. I don't see that. Well, his, Bush's power is given to him by, by the government of the United States, and in, in as much as God sets up governments and takes it down, so it's Saddam. he... he that's true, and so God took his down. <laughs> yeah, but there is a moral judgment of who's righteous and wrong based on the moral teachings of Scripture. And I think that, uh, for example, you can make judgments. Providence tells us how God draws out the boundaries. But the Bible gives you a moral judgment that to drop chemical gas on Kurds and kill 10,000 of them is moral evil. I, I would say that's true, but for me to say that God raised me up, he gave me a big stick and I'm going to go beat this guy because he's inherently morally evil. He can beat me, I'm morally evil too. <laughs> and I don't see that. Well, we are morally evil, we need the gospel. But, but back to what I, all I'm asserting is that we are to pray for our government. And we're not told to create a theocracy. And we're, we're to um, pray for the powers of be, whether we have good ones or evil ones. And so if Clinton was president, then as Christians, we're obligated to pray for him. And uh, if Bush is president, we're obligated to pray for him. Um, and I would say that this idea that fundamentalist means somebody who's filled with hate and wants to murder and kill is, is not uh, real. And first of all, I have to ask, what fundamentals are we talking about? If the fundamentals are the gospel, then that's that. I just would like to add that every mindset or every philosophy has a fundamental basis for what they believe. So it doesn't apply to only Christians, but you can be a fundamental Islamic also, or a fundamental Jehovah's Witness. Or Mormon. Or Mormon. They could be a fundamentalist atheist, that's true. Back to the fundamentals of atheism. Yes. There's a great paragraph in our great section in the book about uh, Aristotle, uh, being a theological writing. There's a great section on how the usage of the words, or the definition of the words, get changed over time. So today, fundamental is, is a very negative. Uh, yes. Yeah. 
that's a good point. And when I was at seminary in the 90s, if there was one descriptive term that absolutely nobody wanted, it was fundamentalism. And if they wanted to discredit somebody, all they'd do is call them that. And so, for example, I was talking with one of my professors about how much I liked John MacArthur and what he had to say on a certain topic. And he just sort of screwed up his nose and goes, oh, MacArthur's a fundamentalist. Well, as if, well, then don't listen to him. He's a fundamentalist. And so my response was, well, I'm a fundamentalist too. And um, in the modernist controversy, the term in Christianity came from the early 20th century during the modernist controversy. And a fundamentalist, the fundamentals were this, that God created the world out of nothing that we're studying right now in Hebrews. That the scriptures are God's inspired word and they're inerrant. That Jesus Christ was bodily raised from the dead. And that the blood atonement is necessary for the forgiveness of sin. And those were the fundamentals. And when that, that was published in about 1915 or whenever they originally published it, the battle was against the liberalism that says there's no miracles, there's no resurrection, the Bible's full of errors, and uh, evolution is true. Now how is it that in 1995 in an evangelical seminary this, that requires for being a teacher there requires for being a student there that you believe in those very fundamentals that were battled a hundred years earlier that now this is a dirty work. And so that's what I asked. Why is this so bad? Which one of the fundamentals are you wanting me to reject? Well, no, we're, we're thinking about like Bob Jones University or something like that. You know, or, so I'm, terminology, you're right, terminology changes and we need to be aware of that we're communicating. Right. Well, I guess the most important point is that it's happening, it's just passively changing. Uh, you know, I believe that it's, you know, by design, it's been corrupted. You know, I'm not extremely strong, I'm extremely strong, you know, I have extreme views and a lot of things that I believe in, but just having an extreme view of, you know, like Christ is the one and only way that, that it's not necessarily evil, but they turn that into an evil word to be an evil. That's true. If you believe anything strongly, you're an extremist. Yeah, not, they don't consider themselves ex- right. Uh, you're right. They're extremists for wanting to have babies partially pulled out of the mother's womb and murdered, and then they don't want to be called. That's just moderate. Yeah, exactly. Okay, let's read those texts here. Psalm 8, 3 and 4, uh, Sam. I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained. What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou hast of him? Well, that's a fantastic passage. You ever think about that yourself? Um, in the city, it seems like you never see the stars. But when we're up north every year on vacation, especially when the kids were little, I used to take Colin out on the dock. And just lay down so you don't get a sore neck. Turn to look up and just lay on the dock and sit there waiting until you see shooting stars. Have you ever done that? There's usually a meteor shower when we're up in Bemidji. And you can, and you can see the Milky Way and the, the, just the huge expanse of the universe. And you can't help but if God has the power to create a, a universe so massive that we can, can't even hardly comprehend it, with our minds, such things as the speed of light and the distances and 
and the time and all of the stuff that, that's out here. And then the God who is that great and awesome to make that big of a creation and sustain it so that it doesn't just melt down um, has personal interest in some puny sinner like me laying here on a dock looking up at it. I mean, the psalmist is simply make, making an observation that I think we all ought to just come to mind. You can't help but make that observation. What is man that you're mindful of us? And it shows God's love and mercy that of all the all the creation that God made, as we see in Genesis 1, that the ultimate thing that he created was humans in his own image. And that there's a uniqueness to human life that's sacred because of God having created us in his image. And that, therefore, there's a plan of salvation. Therefore, there's a Messiah. And therefore, we have access to the throne of grace. If that doesn't put us in any awe of God, I think we got a hard heart. So, there you go. Okay, but then we have um, Zechariah 12.1. Sorry. Well, you know, you got to be real patient when you're going to read a verse from here. This is the word of the Lord concerning Israel, the Lord who stretches out the heavens and lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. That he lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. So there again, you see that laying the foundation means creation. Because it's he also talks about this act of creating man. The fact that he creates the spirit out of nothing, that's kind of a, a very interesting verse for that because we, we didn't pre-exist. It shows right there that he created our spirit. That's a good point. You know, there was this doctrine of the pre-existence of souls that Plato came up with. But, a, but we didn't exist in all eternity, but he shows that he yeah. created and forms it out yeah. of nothing. That's a good point. That's a very good point. We were talking about that at seminary, and one of the students believed in the pre-existence of souls, and so I, I told him he was wrong, and he thought I'd be too harsh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always kind of like that. I just can't sit there. If something's wrong, I have to say something. It's like reading that thing in the papers from Saturday. Yikes. Um, let's go look at verse 11. They will perish, but you remain. Look at them antithetical parallelism here of the psalm. Antithetical is opposite. Perish and remain are opposites. They and you, they, the heavens and the earth, perish. And by the way, the heavens and the earth is a Hebrew idiom too, meaning the whole universe, everything that was created. Alright? And uh, you remain, and that is um, that Jesus Christ in fact, here's a verse for somebody to look up. Mary, do you look up Hebrews 13.8? Because this is brought up in chapter 1, and the author of Hebrews will bring it up again in, more explicitly in chapter 13, sort of in bookends of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is about Messiah as our great high priest. And so Hebrews 13.8, um, when you get it, you can read that. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, he shares the attributes of God as God, fully human and fully divine. And as God, immutability is a key attribute of God. Immutability. Have you ever studied the attributes of God? 
in theology. They're very important. And they're under fire, by the way, like as is everything that we believe. But even amongst evangelicals, now the attributes of God are being attacked. No, I don't think so. <laughs> I think God does okay with you who he is, whether people agree with him or not. <laughs> yeah. I just came up with a thought my friend last night. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was incarnated as a man now. Yeah. this 
in the very early church is that he has two natures, divine and human. And that is that the divine takes on the human natures, the nature in the incarnation. And he's born as a little baby. Little babies grow. Little babies learn. And, 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 and such things that we can't totally understand. But he never ceases his immutable God as an essential being. How does that square with, you know, you're saying you children inevitably do wrong? Okay, yeah, Christ was sinless. Yeah, he didn't because he had no sin nature. And yet, he was conceived he, of the Holy Spirit. Corrected, no doubt. And, I mean, you're, you're implying that by what you say. Um, we have no actual data about other than what says in Luke about Jesus' infancy, his childhood. You know, he went when he was 12 to the temple and disputed with the scribes. And that he grew in, what does it say? Dangerous knowledge. knowledge and dangerous Yeah. And we also know that he's without sin because the Bible tells us that. So, there's a mystery there and I've read what, a lot about it. And I think sometimes we just have to be silent about what the Bible's silent about. There's infancy Gospels, but they're written by the Gnostics. They had Jesus making clay pigeons and then turning them to life and then cursing his childhood buddies when he got mad and they'd die. So we, those aren't inspired. Yeah. But they have one, one example in Scripture where Jesus actually corrected his parents. Do you not know that I would be about yeah. my father's business? Yeah, he corrected his parents. So I would say yeah, Jesus is always sinless. But... As a, a child learns and grows, he was taught. He was taught how to read. That's what we assume. Yes, we assume that he was taught how yeah, to read, that right. he still learns things. But the essential thing that we need to understand is we're learning some important theology here, and it comes directly out of the book of Hebrews, as well as a lot of other texts, is that there are two natures the, the divine and the human. And the divine nature, the essential nature of God and Christ, and this is Christian doctrine taught by all Christian denominations that believe anything about the Bible, okay, that Jesus Christ shares the essential attributes of God and as such is immutable, perfectly, infinitely loving, compassionate, just, true, holy. All of the attributes of God are shared by all the members of the Trinity from all eternity. In the Incarnation, God, the Son, conceived of the Holy Spirit, he's born literally, physically, of a virgin, and he, as a baby, grows, and he has a human nature, but it's sinless, and he is the express image of God in the best way that that ever could be. We were talking about what it means to be in the image of God, by the way, and um, there, I, I think, a, a comprehensive view that it, it means that it has more than one Point. There are such things as our, ra- our rationality, our, our self-awareness, our ability to um, learn and, and things like that. Yes. I was going to say, uh, John Owens, um, he's a, um, renowned as a, as a great theologian. He has a, a work called on the Holy Spirit on the nature of Christ. And uh, I recommend not getting the abridged um, writings on that. I try to do that. You talk about being what's hanging as you're getting into the depths of, of what's being taught. But he has some great works on that that will explain the nature of Christ. It's just, it's just powerful. Cool. It's a, it's a key doctrine, the doctrine of Christ. And 
so we're studying it here, and these these things come up. So, do you understand what I'm asserting? Study the Bible to see if these things are true. I'm asserting that in His deity, Christ shares all the attributes of God as God, and He's changeless, which is being asserted here. That when He came on, but in His humanity, He became certain things, like the author of our salvation, which is what it says in Hebrews two. I know that. Without walking by the Spirit, you can't attain to the attributes of Christ. But I was reading in John 13 this morning when Jesus was speaking at the Last Supper about being um, betrayed by Judas and that he was greatly troubled in his spirit. And to me, that signifies, just like in a previous chapter about when he wept over Lazarus, that he was subject to the things of humanity, especially in the case of betrayal by Judas, because I think the entire uh, evil spiritual world was weighing against him. He felt that. Well, yes, he felt that. And as the greatest expression of Christ's emotional anguish was found in Gethsemane and then on the cross. And um, he, he felt emotional pain as well as physical pain. Yes. I, would, I would contend, though, that I, I would think that his greatest suffering was the fact that he was going to take the wrath of God. That there was going to be, for the first time, a rift in the, in the, in the Trinity. That he was going to suffer the rejection of his father. That's, uh, yeah, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken right. I mentioned that in my article I just wrote about the apostles. Um, okay, we were looking at. The immutability of Christ, Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it says, and they will all become old like a garment. Like a garment. Now, um, what happens if you have clothes long enough? They wear out. It's interesting here. And I, I don't know how aware the psalmist was here of what we know now about science. I'm sure they were thinking of all the same categories. But it says that the whole universe wears out. Right? Now, what do we know now about the universe? As far as the laws of physics. Has anybody studied science? And Second law of thermodynamics. Entropy. Yeah, we, I studied that at Iowa State. Actually, I had to put it, I had, they had a little sigma that we had to put in our formula. Because in chemical engineering, we were continually... Continually, every single thing day in our engineering studies and chemical engineering, you're using two principles in your formulas, the, the, the conservation of mass and the conservation of energy. And so when you create a formula and work your formula, if you have so many grams of whatever, no matter what the chemicals are, there's, some, there's, there's atomic weights to every atom. And so whatever you have that goes into your equation, it better be somewhere on this, on this side when it comes out or you're not, you, you got it wrong. You know, all, all, everything that goes in has to come out, even though it's in a different form. You may take um, silver nitrate and, and copper and come up with uh, copper, cupric nitrate and silver precipitating out. I can't remember all the details. It's been 30 years. But it all has to be there. It all has to be there. Now, the same thing's true with energy, only that it doesn't work. Because, okay, the thing is that you always have loss. You always have loss. 
And so the conservation of energy sort of has a little asterisk with it because the same energy going in has to come out, but it never does because of entropy. And so we had a little formula for that that went in with entropy. And, it was, and, and the reason, that, because of that, is the reason there's no possibility of ever creating a perpetual motion machine. It cannot be done because there's always laws. And so when we were taught chemical engineering, the professor would say there's always laws. Now, let me tell you why they're going to pay you guys the big bucks. Because when they're doing it, we went and visited plants and just to see the kind of stuff we're doing when we get our career. They have a they have these huge macro-level distillation towers like they see out here in uh, um, Ashland, you know, out there. They have these huge distillation towers of train loads with these gas tanks of ethane gas, right? And this stuff's coming in, and when they get done, what comes out is polyethylene plastic. Now, there's a chemical formula and an energy equation that tells how much energy it takes to turn ethane gas into polyethylene plastic and how, how much it's going to cost to do that and how much you get out. And you do that on a formula and you can you get the ideal amount that you can get. Now, in the real world, you, you create your plant and you're getting 80% of what that formula says you can get. All right? Now, the reason they pay the chemical engineers the big bucks is that maybe you can figure out why you're getting 80% and make it 81%. Okay? And so you're, you're trying to minimize that loss due to inefficiency of, of processes. Now, that law of entropy that says every process is inefficient, you, you can't get rid of that. You just minimize it. Has anybody ever noticed that about things like cars and clothes and houses and boilers and <laughs> Everything in the world is inefficient because it's winding up. Now, the psalmist here puts his finger on something when he says, the universe itself is wearing out like a garment, but you remain. No, they had no observational way of, of understanding that. They, they, they couldn't. In the ancient world, without our knowledge of science, everything's fixed and just stays the way it is. But somehow under inspiration, the psalmist writes, the heavens and the earth wear out like a garment, but you or me. And the doctrine of the ultimate end of the earth, the end of the world. Now, scientists, that's why I really bristle with that guy saying no reputable science believes in, scientists believes in creation. I was forced to believe in creation by science. When I had nothing to do with any church, and I wouldn't go to read the Bible, I wouldn't go to church, I was forced to believe in creation by science. Why? In case you want an argument, or if your kids need to understand this, I just teach them. Let me explain this. The, the, the belief in entropy, nobody rejects that in science. I haven't heard anybody say there's no such thing as entropy. Bob, can you give a clear definition of entropy? It's uh, it is the heat loss that you get in every single process, the loss of energy in processes, the fact that there is always loss. Yes. There's a spreading out of energy, I've heard it defined. So everything's getting more and more spread out, and the more spread out it is, the less we can utilize it. 
Okay, I think it's even more than spread out though, it's just the actual loss. The, the amount of available energy in the system is going down. Yeah, in a closed system, I can't remember the technical term, but I think it is it's something like you have to define a closed system. In a closed system, the amount of available energy is diminishing. Because there's energy leaving the system, even though the energy itself is yeah. But if, but if you even take the whole universe as a system, you're still losing it. Alright? Yeah. I was going to say, um, many um, goes from order to disorder. You don't get the tendency order, toward disorder. Right. You start out with an order and it starts wearing down because of disorder. Everything tends to disorder by the left to itself without input of energy. So to keep, now everybody knows this intuitively if you have a house. What does it take to have an orderly house? Now even that falls down. Have you ever seen an abandoned farmhouse? It takes continual input of energy to keep order. Does anybody say amen? amen. <laughs> right. The universe is a closed system. And for it to persist, continue on, takes the input of energy, but it doesn't have anywhere to get it from if there's no God. Now, here's how... Uh, I'll get you in a second, Ken. You know, we see on this thought, because it's a little bit complex. Here's how you argue with somebody about this and start using logic if they're, they're educated. The fact is that the universe is a finite number of years old. And, and that's indisputable. The reason being that if the universe was infinitely old, it would already have died of heat death. The, the law of entropy says that if the universe was infinitely old, it would have already died. Because scientists predict the death of the universe to heat death. If it stays around long enough, because it's losing its available energy. Because of the law of entropy. So, and I've heard debates between brilliant Christian scientists and non-Christian ones, and, and now the atheists will grant that point. I heard William Lane Craig debating a guy from England, a very brilliant man, and Craig was making his point, and the guy granted it. He couldn't argue against it. The atheists could not. The atheists could not say the universe is infinitely old, and he would have to grant that if it were infinitely old, it would already have died. So therefore, the universe is only finite, and it came into being at a point in time, and it doesn't matter how long that point in time was. All we have to establish is that at a finite amount, if it's 10,000 years or 8 billion years, it makes no difference to the argument. The fact is it's a finite amount of time. Now, if that's the case, then something eternal exists that created the universe, or the universe came out, came into existence out of nothing. Those are the two options. Now, a spiritual, infinite, changeless God creating the universe is a far more rational explanation than something beginning when at one time there was nothing whatsoever. Does that make sense? Something coming into existence out of nothing is very hard to argue. There's also, there's also a hard to read, and I don't understand it very well. Basically, there was nothing about um, infinite, 
infinite history or not having a beginning. Yeah. You can never get to this point in time. You, right, right. Right. So everything we understand, if, you, if you're at one time, you have to have a beginning. Starting point. Exactly. Infinite future, but not. Exactly. Okay, Kathy, you go patient. I was just going to say to what your question was about. Just think of hot water. You know, usually it goes down, it gets warm, and then it gets cold. If it stands long enough, that's the same process here. Heat loss, all right? Yes. I just wanted to mention, too, it's a little, little, little off the of entropy. Um, but just the fact of canning and packaging, really, um, with that whole process, we're banking on the fact that evolution is false. <laughs> that, that spontaneous life doesn't just come into being. It has to have already been there or had been corrupted somehow. So our whole packaging system, our canning system, is banked off the system that evolution is false. Yeah. Well, let's get back to our text here that, that <coughs> says they will become old like garment. And it says in the next verse, like a man who will roll them up and they'll be changed. And we'll, we'll look at some verses about that. So the cosmos is perishable. We have a mutable finite created order. The created order changes and it doesn't just change, it changes in a sense of winding down, degenerating. But we have the Son of God who is changeless and immutable and it says he holds everything together by the word of his power. And we know that the present order will be destroyed and it will be a new heaven and a new earth. Okay, um, Carolyn, could you look up Psalm 90 and verse 2 and Dennis, Isaiah 51, 6. And I was going to make a citation of Kistemacher. I've got three commentaries right now I'm reading on Hebrews for my education as we go along. There we go. 47. And I've read others before. Every time I go through a book, I like to use different resources every time, so I learn something. And uh, when I first became a Christian, I read Arthur Pink's commentary on Hebrews as well. This thick. <laughs> All right, here we go. Kistemacher says this. The citation from Psalm 102 teaches the distinguishing characteristics of the Son. He is the Creator, Almighty, Unchangeable, and Eternal. The pre-existence of the Son is indicated by the phrase, in the beginning. His permanence by the clause, you remain the same. And his eternity by the words, your years will never end. So that's what we learn about the Son. Okay, the, Psalm 90 and verse 2. Verse 2? Yep. Before the mountains were born, or you, were, you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Yeah, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And uh, God has created the world out of nothing. Isaiah 51, 6. <clears throat> Lift up your eyes to the sky and look to the earth beneath. The sky will vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a And its inhabitants will die in like manner, but my salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not be. There's this Isaiah saying the same thing, that the earth will wear out like a garment. 
wear out. Amazing, isn't it? Amazing insights from the Old Testament. I want to get back to some other things. So everybody mentions about Darwin evolution, but nobody really remembers that towards the end of his life he gave his heart to the Lord and he viewed it always. I don't agree. Is that not true? Yeah, there is information that's been posted out on that 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 was just a, um, a rumor that was started. Okay. Um, but there is no actual evidence for that. Okay. Testament authors believe that the earth was created at a point in time and is wearing out. That's different than like Hinduism and some of the other stuff. There's uh, lots of pagan religions don't believe. I know. It's only it's it's not only in keeping with what science knows now, but it's unique amongst religions. So those Old Testament uh, writers were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Well, they, be, they believe that they're pantheistic, so the creation is part of God itself. And they believe, well, there's different versions of it, but most Hindus believe that everything is an illusion. And that ultimately everything is absorbed back into God. <laughs> well, it's a little hard to understand. I was reading one source of, of modern uh, universalist Hindu type guy and he says well to understand this you have to be able to understand the sound of one hand clapping <laughs> so it's, it's purposely meaningless you know you sit around and try to contemplate your rationality and once you can't think about it then they say you're making progress So you, you all can either believe the Bible or go home and contemplate the sound of one hand clapping until it makes sense to you. <laughs> okay. And sort of the, while you're doing that, think about a square circle too for a while. And, and like the mantle, you, you will roll them up. Now here God brings it to the end. Even though they wear out, and so there's the process. In the end, God actually finishes it before they get a chance to wear out. God rolls them up. And um, like a garment, they'll be changed. So here we, here we see the idea that the created order will be changed by the Lord. Although God's years will never come to an end. Now let's look at this quickly. We have about three minutes here. Carla, Isaiah 34.4. Keith, Isaiah 65.17. Leif, 1 Peter or excuse me, 2 Peter 3, 7 through 10, and uh, Karen, Revelation 21, 1. Oh, I got one for you, Stephen. We don't want to leave any Gentiles out here today. Psalm 90 and verse 4. We've got the whole family going to tell us about the created order here. Okay, Carla, Isaiah 34, 4. And all the hosts of heaven will wear away and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine, or as one withers from the picture. Yeah, so can you imagine an ancient person who sits, who's there, you know, these are nomadic outdoor people, you know, they didn't have street lights then. 
Did you know that? Uh, they saw the stars, and the stars were fixed in their, you know, relationship to one another. And so there's no reason why they'd look at these fixed stars and think that they're going to wear out. But they prophesied that they would under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Alright, so there is the fact that God's going to bring this order to an end and create a new one. 2 Peter 3, 7 through 10. The bodies of the present heavens and earth are being built. Being reserved for the fight, except for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. If you have not this one fact, escape your notice of it. That with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some call slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with the roar, and elements will be destroyed with intense heat. Yeah, yep. So there's a destruction of this present order and then a recreation of the new heavens and new earth. This is an act of God. Revelation 21 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any peace. I was reading that last night. Remember I've told you before that the Jews don't like the sea? And it, they, they, they're not like us, where Americans, I mean, uh, I think about the ancient Hebrews, that they didn't like the sea because they weren't seafaring people. When people went out there, they died. Okay, so the sea is where you died. And, they, and plus they had this really high view of the importance of how you treat the body. So to die at sea and not to be recovered would be of horrific consequences to the family. And so the sea was a bad thing. And so in Revelation, they're assured the sea will give up its dead. Yeah. The sea is bad, bad, bad. And it's interesting that in Revelation, now the, the Bible's written as Jewish. Hope you know that. All the New Testament is Jewish. The Jewish Bible says in the new creation there's no sea. And they would go, oh, that's great. Now, most of us go, gee, I wanted a condo by the sea. <laughs> but, but, that, but that verse there shows this idea that, that the Jews, that the sea was a bad place. That would explain all the uh, references in Psalms about crushing the sea monster. Yeah, right. It's just like deep, dark, wicked, bad. You go out there and you die. Yes. And did sea back then have to do with any large body of water or... Yeah, they would, they call the Sea of Galilee a sea, and it's not even as big as Lake Minnetonka. That's true. But they were scared of that, too. They, you, know, you see that the disciples scared on the, on the Sea of Galilee. I know when I was a kid, I was hearing about the Sea of Galilee. Oh, the Sea of Galilee. So when I got to Israel in 83, and I got on a boat on the Sea of Galilee, you go, this is the Sea of Galilee. Well, we got bigger lakes than this in Minnesota. And lots of them. Okay, wait, let's get that last verse in. We're out of time. Psalm 90 and verse 4. For a thousand years in our sight, in your sight, are like yet, yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in night. Yeah, a thousand years in God's sight is like yesterday, and meaning God's relationship to time is different than ours. 
time runs along at a certain pace for us, but God is eternal. And He is uh, not concerned about the passing of time in His scheme of things. He is for us. Passing time is important for us because it's within time, the short span of our life, that we need to turn to God and believe the gospel. And what we do here has all the consequences in eternity. So time's importance to us is how it impacts eternity. Okay. Well, we had some pretty deep uh, topics today. We talked about entropy and creation and, and what have you. But I think that we all need to come to grips with these things. And if you've got kids in school, they need answers about these things. And so... The Bible is providing us with some good answers to our question. Yeah. Very good. Give us a one-line wrap-up, though. You just went through a tremendous amount of stuff, but what's the point of the Hebrews? The point is that Jesus Christ is the immutable, eternal God, and He changes not. The, the, the created order, the whole cosmos, is mutable, temporal, and changeable, and is going to come to an end. And we contrast those two things. So that Jesus Christ is greater than anything in the creation, including the angels who are also created. Okay. Next week, we'll finish chapter one. And we might even get into chapter two.